Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is the fifth episode of our third series of podcasts for solution-focused hypnotherapists. And I'm Cathy Eland. And I'm Trevor Eddles, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. Today we're looking at recent brain theories. So, Trevor, tell us about the brain. Well, as you probably know, the brain weighs about three pounds and comprises neurons, estimated to be around 128 million, glial cells, estimated to be around 69 million, and cerebrospinal fluid. Those neurons can transmit messages or impulses at speeds of 120 meters per second, and yet neurons don't actually touch each other. The gaps between neurons are called synapses. Neurotransmitters, which are small amounts of chemicals, carry the message across the gap between the neurons. The sending neuron releases a neurotransmitter, this chemical, which passes across the gap, and receptors on the next neuron pick up the neurotransmitter and pass on the signal. Just like that. And the brain uses about a fifth of all the oxygen used by the body and about a quarter of a person's energy intake. So our highly efficient body tries to reduce the energy demands of the brain. One way is not to make new decisions. For example, which shoe to put on first, but to rely on habits and do the things the same way every time. It's estimated that 40% of everything you do is a habit. So why do we have brains, Trevor? Well, many people would answer it so we can think. However, that's just the consequence of having the brain. And it used to be thought that it was to control movement. Imagine primitive creatures swimming around in a Precambrian sea. Those who could control their movement could swim away from predators and be more successful. Or they could swim faster after their prey and become more successful. And the more successful an adaptation is, the more offspring a creature will have. So evidence for that idea came from sea squirts, which swim around as larvae searching for food. When they find somewhere with plenty of food, the larvae metamorphose into an animal that looks like a plant, the equivalent of roots holding the sea squirt in place. The equivalent of a stem holds its head away from the ground and into the region where the food is plentiful. And because it doesn't need to move anymore, it digests its own brain. Yuck, yeah. Yuck. <laughs> um, other scientists think that the brain evolved to budget the energy coming into the organism against the energy it was using up. Think of it like a, a bank balance. You can't spend more than you earn. And you might need some money saved for a bill that's coming in later. This habit of budgeting allowed the creature to predict what it was going to do next, e.g. swim away from a predator, rather than simply react. It gave those simple animals an advantage. If they predicted correctly or learnt from their mistakes, it made them more likely to pass on their genes. And this budgeting process is called allostasis. Definition time. Allostasis can be defined as the process of maintaining homeostasis through the adaptive change of an organism's internal environment to meet perceived and anticipated demands. Yeah, very good. 
Um, as Animorphs bodies got bigger, there was more budgeting to be done, which required bigger and more complex brains. The fact that human brains can reason logically, feel emotions, be creative, etc., is a consequence of it being able to budget its energy requirements by predicting how it operates in the world around it. Most of the time, the brain is trying to keep everything in our body in optimum condition, much the same temperature, etc. That's called homeostasis. Beep, uh, definition mode. Uh, and to save looking it up, homeostasis is where an organism tends to maintain stable internal conditions. Yes, excellent. If primitive yes. brains evolved to be better and better prediction machines, it means we can respond to what we expect to happen before the event has actually happened. And that, as I said, makes a person or animal better adapted to its environment and more likely to survive and pass on its genes. Yeah, interesting. So let's briefly talk about synapses and neurotransmitters. Having synapses, those little gaps between neurons, rather than physical connections, makes the brain network much more flexible. It also makes it better able to survive any kind of damage. Think in terms of airport hubs. If one hub goes down, another can take the flights, although there may be delays. The hub arrangement also uses less of the body's budget than any other arrangement. Genius! The chemicals that go across synapses are called neurotransmitters. Serotonin and dopamine are not only neurotransmitters, but also neuromodulators. Neurotransmitters don't simply pass on signals. Some are excitatory, which means that they create new signals or amplify existing signals. Think of it like turning up the volume. Other neurotransmitters are inhibitory, which means that they reduce the activity in a neuron. Think of it like turning down the volume, and they can cut off or cancel a signal. Neuromodulation is the physiological process by which a given neuron uses one or more chemicals to regulate diverse populations of other neurons. Wow, you're good at definitions today. I know, it's just flowing, flowing. <laughs> Uh, neurons die and can be created that's neurogenesis and connections between neurons can increase or decrease this is neuroplasticity neurons typically perform a specific function e.g sight but can also perform other functions it's also true that if you were to carry out the same simple action twice in a row the second time may use completely different neurons in the brain to achieve the same objective. This is called degeneracy. Degeneracy in the brain means that actions and experiences can be created in multiple ways. That is truly fascinating. And the other advantage of a flexible network of neurons is what's called complexity. The brain can configure itself into various neural patterns, lots of them. This is what allows the brain to think abstractly, use language, imagine different things and build things, etc. Complex brains 
can adapt to changing environments quickly. And that's just what we need. True, true. One thing about the adult human brain is that it is completely different from any other adult human brain. And that's because the way brains develop depends on their environment, particularly the environment they were in when they were babies. Babies' brains develop by a process of tuning and pruning. Tuning is where connections between neurons are strengthened. This happens with connections that are used frequently or are important for budgeting body resources. These become more efficient and are used more frequently. Pruning is where connections weaken and die off. And of course, there's no need to remember behaviours that were important when you were two years old. And that's why synaptic pruning occurs. The ages when major synaptic pruning occurs are early childhood, around four years old and around 11 years old. Mm, interesting. Mm, mm. Let's look at brain structure. At the front is the frontal lobe, oh, cunningly named which contains most of the neurons sensitive to dopamine. The dopamine system is associated with reward, attention, and short-term memory tasks, planning, and motivation. At the very front is the area called the prefrontal cortex. At the top and in the middle-ish is the parietal lobe. A lot of sense organs end up here. At the back of the brain is the occipital lobe, which is mainly used for vision. And running along the bottom is the temporal lobe, which contains things like the hippocampus. And of course, the brain is divided into two hemispheres. The left side is often described as logical. It controls speech, comprehension, arithmetic and writing. And the right hemisphere is said to control creativity, spatial ability, artistic and musical skills. Connecting them is the corpus callosum, which means that both sides of the brain can be used at the same time. That's useful. Um, connecting the brain to the spinal cord is the brain stem. This area of the brain is responsible for regulating most of the body's automatic functions that are essential for life, including breathing, heartbeat, blood pressure, peristalsis, which is like swallowing. It's where messages from the right-hand side of the brain are swapped to affect the left-hand side of the body. And messages from the left-hand side of the brain go to the right-hand side of the body. It's also where the reticular activating system can be found, which deletes all those messages entering the brain that we don't need to deal with. And it's where most of the serotonin found in the brain comes from. Okay. And the other obvious area of the brain is the cerebellum, which is Latin for little brain, which accounts for only about 10% of the whole brain volume, but houses roughly 75% of the brain's total neurons. Yeah, at one time, no one was sure what it did. Now we think the cerebellum plays an important role in motor control. In addition, it may be involved in some cognitive functions such as attention and language, as well as emotional control, such as regulating fear and pleasure responses. But it's movement-related functions that are the most solidly established. Yeah. So when a cricket player is facing the bowler and needs to make a split-second decision about what stroke to make, 
there isn't enough time for intellectual or cerebral decision-making. Therefore, cricketers train their cerebellum to automatically make go-no-go decisions through lots of practice, which encodes trial and error associative learning. Uh Uh-huh. And unconscious automatic skills, e.g. touch typing without looking at the keyboard, changing gear, riding a bicycle, all rely on cerebellar prowess. Implicit learning is learning incidentally, not trying to learn. Mm. And Plato, over 2,000 years ago, described emotion and reason as two horses pulling us in opposite directions. That was his metaphor for the two parts of the brain that we often call the primitive emotional brain and the intellectual brain. Yeah, birds and reptiles have much the same areas of the brain as humans. It's just that some of these areas are not so well developed. And it's these developments, usually associated with an increase in size or subdivision into different parts, that have been associated with changes in behaviour and thinking ability. It also means that the emotional brain is no more primitive than the intellectual brain and shouldn't really be called that. No. Mm. It's also wrong to think of human brains as the pinnacle of brain evolution. Human brains are just well adapted to the environments that humans live in. Animal brains are equally highly evolved to suit the environments that they live in. Yeah, so true. Um, Moving on. The limbic area. Apparently, we shouldn't now say limbic system because many of the parts found in that area, e.g. the amygdala, are connected to networks that extend beyond the limbic area. Anyway, it contains the thalamus, hypothalamus, hippocampus and amygdala. Amygdala means almond and was thought to resemble an almond. Hippocampus means seahorse because it looks a bit like a seahorse. Um, in fact, the Greek word for seahorse translates as horse-like sea monster. <laughs> um, okay. All sensory nerves except smell go to the thalamus. There the message is split into two parts. The first part goes to the amygdala, which gets a fast response. The second part goes to the intellectual brain and gets a slower response. Smell goes to olfactory bulbs. There are two olfactory bulbs on the bottom side of the brain, one above each nasal cavity. Messages are then sent on through olfactory tracts. The hippocampus is where episodic memories are formed and catalogued before being stored in parts of the cerebral cortex. The hippocampus is important for spatial orientation and our ability to navigate the world. And the hippocampus is where new neurons are made from adult stem cells. The amygdala plays a central role, as we know, in our emotional responses. It attaches emotional content to our memories. Memories that have strong emotional meaning tend to stick. It also has a role in forming new memories related to fear. New neurons are also made in the amygdala. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, it is. yeah. Just note that there are two amygdalae and hippocampi. So there's not just one in the brain. There's one on each side of the brain. Okay. Um, Amygdala hijack can occur in stressful situations, making it harder and harder 
to communicate with the intellectual brain. Yeah, the emotional part of the brain is associated with the four Fs, feeding, fighting, flight, being, and uh, reproductive behaviour. <laughs> the intellectual brain is associated with the cerebral cortex. Like the emotional brain, most of its functions are unconscious. It's only the area at the front that is associated with the conscious brain or the mind. Yeah, it's this prefrontal cortex that executive functions and cognitive control occur. They have a number of functions, including problem solving, maintaining attention and controlling emotional impulses. OK, so let's quickly go back to habits. And if there's anything you need to understand, this is it. The brain's coordination center for habits is the striatum. It is connected to the prefrontal cortex and the midbrain. The midbrain provides input from dopamine-containing neurons. Once a habit is stored, the infralimbic cortex causes a person to carry out the habit when they are triggered by a particular cue, situation or event. So the striatum chooses what to do based on what's been done before. Exactly. Small areas in the brain called basal ganglia take a behaviour and turn it into an automatic routine. Yet one area, the nucleus accumbens, is motivated by what's pleasurable, so it's part of the reward system. A stilling a new behaviour can involve changing an old habit. Yes, that's true. Yes. I also want to mention the glymphatic system. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's the lymphatic system for the brain. It's a waste clearance system that uses perivascular channels formed by astroglial cells and removes soluble proteins and metabolites from the brain. Wow. So that really was a dash through recent ideas about the brain. Yeah, I hope that's given you some new ideas or, or food for thought. Next time, we'll be looking at self-hypnosis. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. Yeah, and next time will be in August. So until then, it's goodbye from me, Trevor Edels. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.